everyone, are we ready? Are we ready for the last session of spring? <laughs> okay, so uh, I hope you've all sincerely enjoyed yourselves today. Um, I know I have. Uh, this is our very last uh, panel. It's called The Parameters of Power, and it's to do with the Labour Party and the possib possibilities and prospects of socialism in Britain. So to my, to my left, uh, we have Ken Spowers, uh, who's the Professor of Post-Compulsory Education at UCL's Institute of Education, and he's a member of COMPASS. Um, to the, to the left of Ken is Charlotte Nichols, who's the National Women's Officer of Young Labour and the Vice Chair of Young Labour's National Committee and Northwest Committee. Uh, she was an active Jeremy Corbyn supporter and she's also a member of Momentum's National Committee. And finally, uh, Alex Williams, who might be known to some of you as being the co-author with Nick Cernicek of, oh, forgive me if I get this wrong, but it's, uh, uh, yeah, Inventing the Future, Post-Capitalism and a World Without Work, which is published in Verso. So, Ken, if you could begin. Um... When you're being defeated on the field of battle, you should ask yourself not only what you did wrong, but what your enemy did right. And my first observation is the left tends to reference its own past, its own failures, its own betrayals, um, but it doesn't spend sufficient time actually understanding probably what is historically the most successful right-wing political force on the planet. And my argument today is that we should, that's where we should start. I want to make a distinction between conservative hegemony, political hegemony, and a broader neoliberal hegemony. Um, but why, why is it that the left has been poor in this? One, because I think that Marxist theory has been not very good at political theory, with the exception of Gramsci. I am a, a lifelong Gramscian, by the way. And therefore, what I want to do is to use a Gramscian analysis in the context of the 21st century to try and understand conservatism and then the challenges for Labour and, and the wider left. Let's just ask ourselves what the Conservatives actually did after 2005. Undoubtedly, their, their success, which in order to win in 2015 unexpectedly, their, their, their political project is rooted certainly in the neoliberal economic and political project. In fact, Despite the tensions that we now see within the Conservatives over Europe and, the mode of cap and different modes of capitalism, that they have been broadly more united in their particular view of the universe than the left has been in its. Moreover, between 2005 and certainly 2010, they built a systematic set of social alliances around social liberalism, but then switching more to blue-collar workers and older voters after 2008. Hence, the whole issue that I've researched around the Osborne strategy uh, for trying to win in the north as well as in the Midlands and elsewhere. So the, 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 what we found there was a level of social adaptation on behalf of the Conservatives, reaching out to groups that they had not, in fact, reached out to in the previous decade. Moreover, they, they have shown a great deal of intellectual discipline, that they, they have developed right-wing think tanks that have been very effective, not least of all uh, a reform and policy exchange. They have a number of attack or, political attack organisations like Taxpayers' Alliance elsewhere, a parliamentary party that draws on these particular forces and, of course, in the end, a very ele effective electoral strategy. But above all, the Conservatives have been very good at what we can call political narratives and political storytelling, able to use common sense idioms and language in order to mobilise people's popular thinking. So there's, what I think is very important I, 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 is that the left should understand the strategies and achievements of the adversary. At the same time, to understand the changes that are also taking place. That is to say that this 
or early openness by the Conservatives is giving way to a far more coercive phase. If you think about the way that they're manipulating democracy, trying to shackle the trade unions and labour, that, in fact, is part of a new, I think, a new new strategy. Um, At the same time, we see amidst their achievements in May 2015, real signs of the limits of of their political project. The splits over Europe the type of capitalism actually that they support. Remember that the the, the people who want Brexit do not support any form of socialised capitalism that you're more likely to see in continental Europe. So there are deeper splits represented here by these particular uh, disagreements over EU membership. They're increasingly dependent on an ageing population as a, 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 a voting bloc and therefore not in fact harnessing the more socially dynamic parts of the population and essentially their project is an English project, or actually parts of England. Um, but, they, but what, in fact, the local election proved was that they could not take big English cities. And therefore becoming increasingly dependent on third force political forces such as UKIP, and of course Johnson himself representing shifts within the Conservative Party away from that more hegemonic strategy that Osborne himself represented. Now, my prediction is this. Unless the left gets a grip on all of this, understands it, what will happen to the Conservative Party, it will embrace right-wing populism as as in the United States, the Republicans have reluctantly embraced Trump. So what what we have to understand is the adaptiveness of modern conservatism and the way that that functions successfully so far on the English terrain. That's what we're up against And I don't think the left basically gets it. I don't think there's been sufficient analysis or understanding of this particular political force. So where are we with the issues of left hegemony? On the one hand, people here today have welcomed, quite rightly, the establishment of a more autonomous left that at last thinks it knows what it's about. And that was signalled by the rejection of new Labour by Jeremy Corbyn's victory in the leadership elections. At the same time, I have characterised in the publication The Osborne Supremacy that Labour's achievements so far could be characterised as a primitive political bloc. That is to say, it has potential, but is still possibly trapped electorally around about 30% plus. And while you could say, well, it's early days, it's early days for Podemos, it's early days for Syriza, it's early days for Sanders, it's early days for Corbyn, right? While you could say it's early days, we have to ask whether, in fact, there is the potential for developing hegemonic strategies from the current positions. And I want to point to, briefly, three, a number of problems that have to be tackled on the left if it is to become a hegemonic force, either politically in terms of elections or more deeply socially over a longer period. First of all, what kind of futures do we have? And this is where we come to Alex's work with Nick and the work of Paul Mason and others. I think these these debates are extremely valuable because they're pointing to different futures beyond that of neoliberalism. But my observation is this, is that while the left has many organic political intellectuals on the ground, probably more in number than the right have, they're deeply dispersed. It's like having a ragtag army. The right organise themselves deeply coherently. They make the most of their resources. Ours are all over the place. In fact, we do not know who they are. 
We think about left-wing think tanks, but what about the bloggers? What about all these civil society organisations that are literally kicking off as we speak? We do not have a map of the organic, progressive organic intellectuals of the left, either in this country or elsewhere. We are ignorant, we are blind. And what is our economic and societal strategy? Well, I'm glad that, in fact, McDonald's meeting today, yes, and some headway is being made on this. At least some signs, we see some signs of developing a strategic outlook. But actually, the left is poor at this. It may be better at policy than the Conservatives, but it is hopeless at storytelling. It cannot, the left does not seem to have the vocabulary or the capacity to, to relate to popular common sense. Now, I don't just call, I, I take a Gramscian view of common sense, I don't just characterise it as neoliberal common sense. Common sense is far more contradictory, has far more potential inside it than people make out. So how do we do that? And one of the interesting things is, how does, how does the Labour Party operate on an English terrain? That's why I'm not only interested and fascinated by, the, by Alex and Nick's work in a sense of, in a sense of it's, it's techno-communism, really, I think, yes, that kind of vision. I'm also intensely interested by Don Denham's work on how you actually transform an English political landscape. You have to live in the present as well as living in the future. And how do we therefore create social and political majorities out of the oppositions that have crystallised in the last few years? And here I come to the work that I'm currently undertaking, a successor to the Osborne Supremacy. It's called The Very Modern Prince. It's obviously a play on words because Gramsci talked about the modern prince being the political party. My argument here today, that probably isn't enough. And actually, I was just I was rereading some, your section, by the way, Nick, yes, on organisation ecologies, and I found myself in deep agreement with you that, we, that, in fact, we not only need new types of left parties, but we need also to develop other forms of organisation, what I term radical civil society, as well as political alliances. And this is what I'm talking about when I talk about a new political economic formation. And it seems to me that if we are to succeed and to win power in any strategic or profound sense, then we have to address at least four types of integral development. First of all, an integral ideology that is a, a post-capitalist vision. And by the way, the problem here is, is that we do not agree what this is because of the problems of fragmentation in the 1990s. Remember that the singularity of state socialism disappeared, right? And, and the failure, we have the failure of the current failure of social democracy. But we also have ecological, feminist concepts. We have... Different, we have different strands of progressive thinking that have to be brought together into dialogue. So there's no singularity. At the same time, we have to be able to live in the present and transform popular belief. I think we're particularly weak at that. So the left has a lot to do ideologically in order to develop its vision and its capacities. At the same time, I think it's very important to think about the connective role of, of what Gramsci called organic intellectuals. Now, great play has been made of charismatic leaders, if you think about Inglese and others, right? I mean, and the media strategy of Podemos, for example. These are very important. But I don't want to stress these things today. What I want to stress is the need to have a profoundly connective force to bring together the different strands of the left and progressive movement that are currently dispersed. So it's more on this systematic forms of dispersed leadership that I think we ought to be paying deeper attention. And Nick and I, were, uh, sorry, Alex and I were just discussing our attendance at uh, an event just last Friday on the Cyber Party and the way that 
different forms of connectivity and communication are taking place in both established and new political forces. But I also want to just finish by, the, by emphasising the following. I was in the session this afternoon on the issue of the crowd. Now, as you know, crowds are very, well, they have a, as it were, a sentimental part in the history of the left. Because it was crowds who associate with revolutions. October 1917 being that instance, yes, the crowd. Yet actually what was interesting about Gramsci's work when he reflected on the defeats in the 1920s, he, did, he made a distinction between war of position, war of manoeuvre. And my, my argument here today is that any action by the crowd, and interesting, there's interesting work going on around how squares are occupied. If you look at the, the issue of how public spaces are occupied and have been part of and been the manifestation focus of popular movements, which are at the root of everything that we're talking about here today, that this only means something if it is part of systematic, pain, painful construction, a painstaking, patient task of building civil society, building alliances, winning, winning ideological political ground, winning elections and keeping that, particular, keeping that particular dominance by virtue of the spreading of the consent that you're trying to create. So while I'm interested in these warfare analogies, as a Gramscian, I'm interested in these kind of warfare analogies, you know, war of position, war of manoeuvre. Ultimately, our project is about systematic construction. And that's why it's very important to have a sense of the future that I think Alex gives us, but also that we have to understand how we work in entirely new ways, more connective, more network ways, to be not only part of, in a sense, to signal that future, but to create the very conditions here and now, and this is where we might, Alex, amidst all the agreement, I want to, I want to pick a fight with you today, right? And that's about what I understand is, I think, an, an offish dismissal of folk politics, right? By folk politics, I understand that to be about a concern about the present. The fact of the matter is this. All of us live in the present, Right? live in the present. I mean, I, I, I refer you to the work of Christopher Pollitt about neoliberalism and the expand, what we call an expanded present. But of course, our task is to envisage a future. How do we, in fact, move from where we are to where we want to be? And that means, Alex, I think we have to work simultaneously with the visions that you and, uh, and Nick and others have outlined of what I think is the, uh, are the new communisms, by the way. They are, in fact, yes, a form of new communism. And at the same time, to transform the very lives of people now because people only have this life. And they have to try out of this life to create a good life in the, you know, in the world that they have. And it's the job of the left and the progressive forces to try and bring those two things together. Thank you. So one of the things that was sort of posed in the questions that we got prior to this was about the idea of sort of moving the Labour Party to the left or pushing the leader of the party to the left. And I think it's something that history has shown isn't something that's particularly effective. The leader is a figurehead of the party and often its structures are much more important. But then 
there's an element of getting stifled and bogged down in bureaucracy because the Labour Party has a very managerial structure. Um, there's a lot of bodies in the party that no one really knows what they do, no one really knows what their role is. Um, you know, does anyone in this room that's a party member know what their regional board does, for example? I would say probably not. Um, and it's the sort of thing that the left doesn't have a particular knack for this, nor are they particularly interested in this. The right are much more interested in and much better at this managerialism that's made them so effective in taking the party in the direction that benefits them. Um, you know, these meetings about meetings kill the vibrancy of the left, but it's often where the power is in the traditional sense that we understand power. And it's been atomised throughout the party, not to the grassroots, but through subcommittees, committees, subcommittees of those committees, think tanks, and so on. Labour structures aren't transparent and often bear little relation to each other in a meaningful way either. Few people understand them, and it means taking over or altering these structures to make them more meaningful is a really mammoth task in terms of making them more democratic and making them more accountable to members. What Miliband uh, failed at as leader of the party was consolidating the support around him, uh, particularly as in many respects he relied on the union vote to win the leadership election in the first place. He was sort of stranded amongst the membership that were often hostile and in trying to win them over lost where his support had been, for example, in the unions. Uh, my own union, GMB, at one point were pushing to withdraw their financial support from the Labour Party at one point during his premiership. He didn't challenge the established status quo within our structures and had deeply questionable advice, um, you know, things like Ed Stone that we all remember, um, but he seemed powerless to sort of say to these people around him, well, actually, no, this is a terrible idea because everyone was saying, like, this is what you need to do, Ed. And he had no one around him saying, like, no, really, don't do that. <laughs> like, please, don't do that. Um, what makes Corbyn's leadership so exciting for me is the fact that it's introducing much more direct democracy in a way that not only threatens some of the vested interests in our party, but also in wider society. And you can tell that by some of the backlash that he's had, not only from you know, the press establishment, but also the establishment within our party, um, you know, groups like Progress and Labour First, for example, who are deeply hostile to his leadership and manoeuvring against him. But he's gained support not only in the party um, through groups like Momentum, for example, but he's also looking to reinvent Labour from a very centralised party to one that is much more open to and relevant to normal members. Power is something that the left has often been afraid of, as I think it implies um, a sort of compromise. And you know, often there is a compromise insofar as you know, I'd take a Labour Party with its controls on immigration mug over what we've got at the moment in government any day of the week, but it doesn't mean that, you know, it's something that's necessarily um, that you'd want. <laughs> um, and, you know, alongside that, I think, you know, there are more and more people becoming more politicised through stuff like the austerity agenda alongside people within the party over a number of years having become increasingly depoliticized because we uh, spend a lot of time doing sort of silly maneuvering in these often meaningless structures in the party you know who can be the vice chair of the CLP like who can be on this 
CAC for you know the conference arrangements committee and our maneuvering is done there or we talk about things like door knocking as a end in and of itself rather than as a means to deliver something else so you know I knock on loads of doors therefore I have value in the party rather than I've got value in the party because of my ideas and you know here's what they are and why they're important and you know door knocking is a way to give them to people rather than it being a kind of quota that you have to hit to have any value and I think in the past we've tried to talk about things in a way that we think that everyone will agree with it but in a way where no one really agrees with it um, a friend of mine gave an example. She was talking about uh, the Cat Cafe in London and how it would be really great if we had a Cat Cafe in Manchester. And a load of people were saying, like, oh, I don't really like cats. Like, I really like dogs. What we should have is a dog cafe. And that Miliband's response would be to you know, introduce a hamster cafe or something. And you know, no one wanted the hamster cafe, but he, he didn't want to upset the people that wanted the cat cafe and he didn't want to upset the people that wanted the dog cafe. And then you end up with this thing in the middle that everyone says, well, actually, who was asking for hamsters? No one. And I think, you know, I'm very optimistic in a lot of the things that have been happening in the party recently that we can start talking about issues in a way that resonate with people because it's coming from the people rather than you know through these atomized structures in the party you know building an actual movement rather than just a party where you know the party is embedded in our communities it's embedded in our trade unions it's embedded in you know even our workplaces and things like that there's no reason that labor can't be involved at every level of civil society and in a sense i think 2020 is the goal but it's looking beyond that as well i think we need to rebuild and unify the left um, Dr. Fazia Shahid of the Class Think Tank gave a very interesting talk recently about creating new frames. You know, we talk about um, what we were saying about the common sense approach earlier and how, you know, the Tories talk about the economy like it's household finances. And we sort of start talking about other household finances analogies rather than saying, you know, actually, that's completely stupid. Why are we talking about it in that sense? Let's talk about it in this way instead. We, we fight everything on their turf and in their territory, which, of course, they're much better at because then we're automatically on the back foot. Um, I think, you know, we need to stop trying to fight the Tories on their ground but reframe the debate entirely. And rather than being bogged down in negativity, start talking about what we're for rather than what we're against. You know, it's not good enough to just not be the Conservative Party. You know, when you're talking to people and you're saying, like, oh, you know, we need to stop the Tories doing this, you know, we're against this, we're against that, we're against austerity, we're against these cuts, we're against X, Y, and Z. And people say, well, that's great, but what are you for? And I think we completely lost sight of that in the general election. You know, rather than being against austerity, let us be for economic justice. You know, um, let's talk about how in the future, you know, in an age of automation, you know, what's the new workplace going to look like? How do we talk about things like full employment in this kind of new economy that, you know, we're moving towards? Um, you know, the environment, things like that. Harnessing this social dynamism that Ken spoke of as an opportunity rather than speaking about the sort of victories and failures of the past. You know, let's reinvent labour as something that's relevant to people not just people who are automatically interested in our party, but by bringing our already, I would say, quite broad church wider and bringing more people into our big tent. Thank you.
Okay, um, I'm going to address two issues relating to the, the title of this panel, The Parameters of Power. So, um, first of all, one, what are the parameters of power? Two, what does Corbyn's rise mean about strategy for the left in the UK? But I'm going to keep that quite general because a lot of it comes down to specifics. Maybe we could bring that out in the questions. Um, so, the first, first of these topics. So, the parameters of power. There's been a recent claim that's been made by those on the Labour moderate right, which we can think of as not very moderate, the sort of screamingly right wing, um, which has been that the ascendancy of Jeremy Corbyn has led to the Labour membership um, basically endorsing him because they no longer care about winning the next election. This has been repeated over and over again. Now, I think there is actually a degree of truth in this, but we need to kind of, but not in the, obviously not in the terms presented by the Labour right. Um, well, first of all, what, why might they understand the situation of electing Corbyn in, these, in, in this sense? Well, um, a certain logic pertained for the Labour Party from the 1990s to just before Corbyn's ascension, and it runs like this. I've numbered it as a list. It's very basic. It's a series of incredibly basic and almost totally wrong equations. So, first of all, winning power is all that matters. I actually agree with that, but that's the last point I'll agree on. Two, winning power can be personalised to particular personnel, e.g. particular groups within the Labour Party. They're the people that win. Three, winning power is winning elections. Four, winning elections uh, equates to matching our policies to the desires of the electorate. Five, the desires of the electorate in turn are discernible through polls, focus groups and the limitations that we can discern uh, in the UK media. So I basically, I agree with the first point, power is everything, but I just disagree with all of the rest. Um, so what were the effects of this kind of set of understanding power in, this, in these ways? In essence, this is, this, all of this relates closely to the programme of neoliberalising the Labour Party and to accede to many, if not all, of the hallmark policies of neoliberalism. Um, most significantly, the fact that markets are the best resource allocators that state and other forms of organisation and planning cannot ever compete. It's the vision of Hayek, for example, and other economic things of neoliberalism. Hence, we should privatise where possible, where not some mixture of marketisation and contracting out, which means either the state buying services, often free at the point of use, but given out to private contractors, Serco, G4S, for terms that never precisely align with electoral cycles. Marketisation means... Um, anybody who works in the public sector, you already know what that means. But it's metrics, managerialisation, evidence-based policy-making, inverted commas, where the evidence can often be, uh, for its ultimate success as a, as a way of managing public, public services, is often very thin. Combined with rampant financialisation, reliance on house prices to increase, uh, increases to enfranchise some key groups within the population, possessive, competitive individualism as a cultural condition, combined with some elements of social liberalism and devolution and some elements of, quote, sharing the proceeds of growth. This is the sort of uh, Blairite mantra. The basic result was the embedding of neoliberalism, far more so than it had been under Thatcher, who had actually begun the process. They actually kind of perfected it for the 90s and uh, for most of the 2010s. Now, we can kind of think that there's, there's maybe two groups within Labour, or there were. So, uh, in this era when they were kind of they, they had this certain way of thinking about what power meant and, and you know, how they had to relate to neoliberalism as a result. The first group of the, you might think of as they're the true believers, right? 
They're the people who really think that neoliberalism is right. It's the only way to do things. Hayek is basically completely right. Um, but what we can, it should be managed in a nicer way, and we can be social liberals, unlike Thatcher. Um, and you think about Blair or Mandelson here. They would be kind of prime people. But also a lot of people who now make up progress, I'd say, would still maybe... I mean, who knows what they believe in, really. I think they, a lot of the younger generation simply believe in winning elections. That's all they believe in. And they have no idea how to do it either now, which is quite amusing. Two, a much larger group who basically perceive neoliberalism as basically false and or bad but couldn't discern any way to win power without agreeing to some of its terms. Miliband, basically, and a whole bunch of the soft left, certain unions even. You have to go along with it if you want to have any chance of you know, preventing the worst excesses. This was perhaps the idea. Okay, so what might the real parameters of power look like? Um, why was New Labour so wrong? So, rather than thinking in terms of winning a singular position of power, winning state power at the next election or some other election, what we need to think about is something which is much more complicated, dynamic and open-ended. More complex, dynamic, open-ended understanding of what power is and where it lies, from what position it can be exercised. So this is why we need to talk about hegemony. Ken's already talked about it, but I'll talk about it in quite generic terms, I think. Um, And it's basically, as I understand it, it's the system of power that emerges as soon as you have complex societies. So societies that you can't just rule through force, you can't just rule through everybody basically being the same and all being bound by cultural or religious convention. So here here are some of the key ideas of this, and I'll hopefully develop them a bit so you can understand how they relate to um, Corbyn and his particular predicament and where we can hopefully take things in the future. Okay, so number one, there's no transcendental position from which power can be exercised. So there's the idea that you simply, you know, you get handed the keys to Downing Street and providing you're a nice person and you've got nice ideas, you're going to be able to make the country a nice place. It's just false. That's not not how anything works. Instead, you've got relative locations. You still want the keys to Downing Street, but you might need some other things beforehand and you might need some other things in addition. So power within the state is important, but only insofar as it's going to be able to interact with power that comes from other locations, the media, social movements, the economy, finance, infrastructure, culture, and so on and so forth. The ultimate form of power is the power to actually basically change the rules of the game, to configure the space on which everybody else is playing politics. So this was the, this is one of the problems of New Labour was they you know, understood they, in incredible detail the rules, but they didn't really attempt to change them. So this has already been brought up um, in terms of this idea of framing, common sense. So common sense, you can think of it as, as kind of what's the framework of possible acceptable opinions in any given you know, area. So what can you get away with talking about on Newsnight and what would get you kicked off almost immediately? Uh, so once upon a time, articulating a belief, for example, that key UK industries should be publicly owned, this was common sense, completely acceptable in the media, um, and Parliament, and neoliberal views, the kind of stuff that Hayek was espousing, were completely seen as crazy and wacky, dangerously radical. Now the position is inverted. Um, so you could express those views, but they, just, they wouldn't find a place at the heart of the conversation, for example. Okay, another point. Hegemonic power is complex and not simple. So we need to think about the, this form of power as an ability to control to a greater or lesser extent the ability of other groups and phenomena to organise themselves. So it can have a component of force or coercion, 
but it largely is going to operate in a space between pure force, think of a policeman's truncheon um, on the back of the head, uh, and at the other end of the spectrum, pure active assent, uh, where you know, you're an ideological true believer, where you sincerely believe in a position. It's all the territory in between that, which is where this form of power operates. And this space could be defined as minimally passive consent, e.g. what people will do if they follow the path of least resistance, which is what most people do. Everybody here, we're, we're all completely unrepresentative because we've come to spend a day talking about politics. Most people don't do that and won't ever do that, and we need to be realistic about that. Um, it's basically, this is a form of power that's going to be emergent from lots of different places, lots of different systems. Um, it can rely on kind of systems of alliance, which can be in the register of conscious assent, I believe in X, direct affiliation, or it can be much more loosely coordinated through mechanisms like shared world views, might be called emergent poles of attraction, or even structures of feeling, a kind of a, you know, deep cultural senses that we we have something in common, that we're working on a common project. In this sense, nothing is necessarily inviolable, nothing need be as it is, but we have to work with the world from the world where it is today. Hence, uh, opinion, desire, beliefs, these can all be re-engineered, we can change them. They can be shifted, re-articulated, manipulated. This is where hegemony can mean something like leadership, which can be charismatic and individualistic or dispersed an emerger. It means changing rather than merely reflecting what publics think. For example, hatred of immigrants um, is not the natural belief set of the British people. Um, it's been skillfully generated and nurtured over many years, but at the same time it can't simply be gotten rid of just by rationalistic insistence. It can't be like you show some, some people who hate immigrants uh, a report saying actually on balance immigration is good, maybe even necessary for the UK economy. Um, you need to, I think, do more than that. As a strategy, uh, it's about using limited resources available at any point in time, for example, organisational, ideological, institutional, and using them to achieve power within relative locations, within a state or social system. These relative locations are, in turn open up new resources, new abilities and projects. The overriding objective has to be to use more short-term forms of power to get to more long-term forms. This is what Gramsci termed the historic block. This is what you want to go for. This is what neoliberalism at times has achieved in certain places. It's where the state, civil society, the economy, culture, media, infrastructure, they're all in sync. They're mutually reinforcing. They have a degree of stability, but they're heading somewhere. And the result of all this is a trajectory, a direction of travel. Under neoliberalism, it's a tendency towards ever more neoliberal policies. It's where we've been for the last 30 years. On a, on a trajectory towards somewhere really, really horrible, basically, somewhere none of us want to live. But no historic block lasts forever. It always can be undermined by any transformations in its key parameters, which are securing it. For post-war embedded liberalism, the kind of, uh, kind of social situation we had in this country after 1945 to roughly 1979, also known as social democracy, things like the increasing mobility of capital, rising energy prices, falling capitalist profits... Coinciding, these led to the collapse of a, of a coherent system. And at the point of breakdown, different forces had to compete uh, to fix it into some kind of dynamic coherence, a new state of affairs. The, the new right, the neoliberals, Thatcher and her pals, they were able to do this. The new left, for all its interesting ideas, wasn't. They failed. And that's why we're in the world we are in today. Um, so, 
Uh, on this basis, what can we say for Corbyn's Labour and the rest of the left too? First of all, we need to emphasise that none of this is quick. So we're, we might all be very much concerned with you know, the immediate uh, privations of austerity and would be right to um, be so. But we need to look simultaneously at long-lasting process of transformation. Time frame needs to move beyond election cycles. It needs to think towards um, very much big picture tendencies. Winning power is about more than elections. We've got to be within the state, but also elsewhere too. And you need an understanding of what I would call political ecology, which is not just the Labour Party. Lots of people in Labour, there's still a tribal insistence. Even uh, you saw this in the leadership election when various people who wanted to vote, um, presumably for Jeremy Corbyn, joined uh, to vote for Jeremy Corbyn, were being kicked out because they once were uh, promoting the Green Party on social media. This is not a way to run um, a political party today. Um, so you need alliances across progressive parties. Um, recently there's been an idea floated that actually, really, it's, it's proportional representation or something like it which needs to be on the horizon um, and might be one way to resolve some of the splits within the Labour Party. Um, but also when you think of a broader political ecology, political parties, social movements, unions, think tanks, charities, and a variety of other organisations as well. Now, working out how to get these different kinds of organisations to pull together without insisting on some kind of absolute unity where we're all signed up to some central mailing list or set of beliefs, this seems key. Um, and I think in this respect, what's important is actually something like ideology. So if you all believe at least some of the same things, then you'll be able to uh, ally on some issues. So I think there also needs to be a shift, as everybody in this panel has said, which is great, <laughs> we're in agreement on this, away from simply resisting um, and opposing, which was, well, it can always be successful on a local level, um, can never really compete with macro-level tendencies unless you have a total social mobilisation, which you won't have in this country unless there's food riots, which we don't want and which will be quickly resolved. So you can win small victories on the local scale. For example, you can defend a hospital or a library from closure, and you should probably do it. But around the country, whilst you are running your campaign, ten more are closed. There's a need for a positive vision. So in this sense, uh, while determinate plans are not always a good thing, because events always intervene, we shouldn't necessarily be coming up with some grand, complex, utopian scheme, it's good to think about what we might want and also how, what's changing, what dynamics are, uh, are going to be configuring the world that's going to come to be. So there's a few things. I mean, I've written a lot about the rise of automation. Um, other things which are important are things like climate change. This is, it's already happening at a vastly and terrifyingly accelerated pace. This is the, if we're going to be thinking about 15 years hence, we need to be thinking about a world where climate change is the new reality. Now, maybe we, um, we almost certainly absolutely have to do everything we can to, to stop it. To, um, uh, but at the same time, we're going to be dealing with its effects. We need to be realistic about what those effects are going to be. Um, and a, and a, a left that's already thought through, here's what we're going to be. Here's our attitude to climate immigration. Here's our attitude to geoengineering. Here's our attitude to uh, you know, all forms of kind of amelioration that are going to be necessary to help people survive, both in this country and elsewhere that is a party that's going to be more successful. It's going to be a, a social movement that's going to be more successful. Um, thinking about things like automation, uh, I mean, it's become a new commonplace to say that robots are stealing your jobs. It probably won't be a robot. It's more likely to be an algorithm. They won't be stealing your job. They'll be stealing a lot of t multiple tasks that make up your job. 
Um, but certainly uh, what's become plain is that um, there are the, the, the new wave of robotics, algorithms, tasking technologies together, potentially going to absolutely transform the world of work. The Labour Party needs an answer to that. I mean, the, cl the clue is in the name, um, but if it, it simply stands on a 1970s or 60s, 50s platform for full employment, it's simply the case that the economic conditions are, they no longer pertain to allow that. It would, it, it would be completely unrealistic to do so. And yet you still get some people, for example, Dan Jarvis, when he was floating his leadership bid, hilarious, he said, Labour is the party of work, and completely imagination-free. Um, so we need to actually start thinking about these issues. We need to start thinking about how we can rethink what we believe and how we can make something which is desirable. Uh, any successful hegemonic strategy for the left needs to think in terms of these long-term dynamics. So to conclude, a fundamental flaw in UK thinking for generations has been the abandonment of the perspective of hegemonic strategy. With the election of Corbyn, a new opportunity arises for historic re-engagement with a really ambitious politics across the left in the UK. This would minimally place an emphasis on long-term change uh, through the insertion of left activism and party politics alike into key dynamic trajectories of the future, and that would require party politics to shift beyond simply winning state power as its only objective, and for activism to shift beyond single issues and ethical localism, and altogether towards a large-scale project to reorient the entire platform of UK society. Thank you.